Every once in a while, I preach a message that I wish everyone in our network would watch or listen to. And Eyes on the Road is one of those messages. My greatest concern for our collection of churches is that we would fail to follow the example of the father in the story of the prodigal son, that we would become content with who's at home and lose our concern for those who've wandered away or who've never been introduced to their father's love to begin with. It's a familiar story, but it's a story that never fails to realign my heart with the heart of a heavenly father who is willing to leave the 99 to track down the one. A father who refuses to stop searching until what was lost is restored. And a father who throws a party for a son who has done nothing whatsoever to deserve it. A father who always has his eyes on the road. One of the most um, baffling things, and I love this, and we talk about this every once in a while, one of the most baffling things about Jesus is that um, from the perspective of sort of the broad perspective, Jesus showed up as a religious leader, but as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he just did not gravitate toward religious people. So you have a religious leader that's not gravitating toward religious people. Um, he, he was sent from God, but he didn't seem to pursue the people that were considered most godly. In fact, the way we say it around here is this, that people who are nothing like Jesus actually liked Jesus and he liked them back. The people who are nothing like Jesus, I mean, nothing like Jesus, actually liked Jesus and he liked them back. In fact, the group that was most comfortable with the temple and the whole temple worship thing, the group that was most comfortable with all the religious garb, especially if they lived in the vicinity of Jerusalem, the people that were most comfortable with the temple were, that were most uncomfortable with the temple because of the way it made them feel. They felt ostracized, never ceremonially clean, never match up. The people who were most um, uncomfortable with the temple seemed to be the most comfortable people with Jesus. In fact, when you read the gospels, it's really amazing. If you just wanna do something fun, read the book of Mark, Matthew, Mark, and just circle or highlight the word crowd. There is a crowd in almost every chapter in the book of Mark because everywhere Jesus went, he drew a crowd. And these were people who were nothing like him. And yet for some reason, they liked him. And the challenge to me personally with that and the challenge for all of our collective churches all over the country with that is simply this. The church, and you know this if you grew up in church, the church is his body which means what was true of Jesus personally should be true of us collectively. That what was true of Jesus personally, that people who were nothing like him liked him and that people were drawn to him even though they didn't really get him and they didn't believe everything and they didn't understand everything. I mean, we're still trying to figure out half of what he taught. That this should be true of us. That what was true of him personally should be true of us collectively. That people should be drawn to believers who are in line and on mission with what Jesus was up to in the world. We should be the most likable people in the community, whether people agree with us or not or believe with us or not. People should just like us even though they're nothing like us. And so for 21 years, since we started this whole thing, that's really been our mission. Our mission has been to sort of line up with that, that posture of Jesus, not individually, because none of us are that good, but collectively, that our mission is to make that a reality. Specifically, we wanna be in the habit of resisting the things that make Christianity and church so resistible, that we want to be intentional about resisting personally but corporately, resisting those things that makes the church, it makes Jesus, it makes Christianity so incredibly resistible. Now, when you open the gospels, one of the, the things that sort of jumps out at you, or maybe it hasn't jumped out at you, maybe after I talk about it, it might start jumping out at you, is one of the reasons that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus was because he used different adjectives 
to describe people. Now, we all have adjectives to describe people, every single one of us. In other words, if I were talking to you personally, I could, we would start talking about people, we could all fill in this blank. Well, you know, those are the rich people, or those are the educated people, or those are the uneducated people, or those are, this is how I say it sometimes, those are just not my people. Do you have people? Let me answer it for you. Yes, you have people. In other words, when you show up at a party, when you show up in a community, you drive around and you kind of get a sense, well, these are my people. These are not my people. You know, I'm polite to them, but I don't want to go fishing with them. I'm polite to them. I don't want to go on vacation with them. They're not my people, but those are my people. So we all have adjectives, you know, good people, bad people, respectful people, um, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. We've all kind of got adjectives that we use to describe people. And that's not going to change and that's not going to go away. But what was unique about Jesus, or one of the things that was unique about Jesus, is the way that Jesus prioritized his adjectives. And so people who were nothing like Jesus tended to be drawn to Jesus because of the way he prioritized people and the way he categorized people and essentially the way that he viewed the world and the way that he viewed the people in the world. For example, Luke tells us this. It says, now the tax gatherers or tax collectors and sinners were all, and I just love this. This is just amazing. This should, this should just cause all of us who've been a Christian a long time to just pause and think. Now, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. They didn't have to send out stuff. They didn't have to send out flyers. They didn't have to beg people and feed them pizza, you know, and have a band. It's like wherever Jesus went, when Jesus stood up to speak, everybody just gathered around. And this, these, were the, these were the labels. You know, these were the adjectives this culture used to describe certain people. Tax collectors, they had a category of their own because they didn't want to offend the sinners. You've heard us talk about that. Tax collectors and sinners. These were the go-to cultural adjectives. So now you got the kind of the worst two group of people in the world gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees, they were there too because they're always, you know, the, the perpetually trying to trap Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, which is a great word. We should use that more. Muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I, we don't get it. You came as a religious leader, but you never invite us over, Jesus. You came as a religious leader, but you hang out with non-religious people. You came as somebody who says you're from God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How offensive, but anyway, I mean, we, we know who you claim to be, and yet all the wrong people are attracted to you, and we have a hard time having an audience with you. you you've completely confused us. Do you not understand? Jesus knew, Jesus knew that both groups, the tax gatherers and the sinners and the religious people in his community, they both had the wrong adjectives. Both groups prioritized their adjectives, the way they describe people in a way that didn't reflect the way their heavenly father did it. They thought in terms of good people, bad people, acceptable people, unacceptable people, ceremonially clean people, unceremonially clean people, men versus women, men versus children. And all these were adjectives you know you could use to describe people, but unfortunately in this culture, those adjectives have crept to the top these were the primary ways people viewed the people in their community. And Jesus decides, I'm gonna teach both groups at the same time because he was like the master teacher. I'm gonna teach both groups at the same time how to view the world differently and how to view people differently. And I'm gonna teach both groups at the same time how our heavenly father views people. So he told them three parables two about lost things and one about a disrespectful son. These are some of the most famous parables that Jesus taught. So I'm gonna go through them quickly because chances are you've heard them before. 
Luke chapter 15, if you wanna fill in the gaps for yourself and read them again slower later, but here's what he says. He, just, he doesn't introduce the topic because he knew better than to do that. He just starts and he's so amazing. He gets everybody on the same page. This, this is confusing to us because we don't, we're not shepherds, but in this culture, immediately all the men are doing this like, yeah, we don't like you, but yeah, we, we're, we're following. He says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. And as soon as he says this, anybody in there that knew anything about shepherding or sheep immediately knew the answer to this question. If you have 100 and you lose one, Jesus says, don't you, doesn't he leave the 99? So in our culture, we're thinking, no, I got 99, it's okay if I lose one. That's not how they thought. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And everybody in the audience, Pharisees, you know, teachers of the law, scribes, you know, the sinners, tax gatherers, everybody in the audience, this is the first time they've ever agreed with each other about anything. They're all like, yep, that's what you do. If you lose one, you go look for the one. And when he finds it, Jesus continues, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. They're not like, I don't know about joyfully, but yeah, we go home. And then he calls his friends. This seems to be a bit of hyperbole. Maybe they chuckled because he kind of made a bigger deal out of this than perhaps, you know, real shepherds made a big deal. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And they kind of chuckle because, yeah, I mean, you don't have a party when you find a lost sheep. But when you find something that's been lost, it's valuable. It's, you know, you feel good. You, you feel better than you did before it was lost. It's a very strange thing. And his point is this, that when we lose something, isn't this true for all of us? When we lose something of value, we focus on what's lost to the neglect of what's unlost. That's what we do. Hey, you know, men, if your wife or your fiance calls you and says, oh no, 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 I've lost my engagement ring. And then she says, but don't worry, I have my cell phone. So what? Yeah, I lost my engagement ring, but I haven't lost my cell phone, obviously. It's like, so what? I mean, the fact that you still have your cell phone does nothing for me emotionally because you've lost your engagement ring. When you lose something of value, the fact that you have a bunch of unlost stuff, how helpful is that, right? Years ago, I think I told you this story. Years ago, when my kids were little, we camped a lot. So I had all three kids out camping. Sandra's at home having a break, you know? And we lost, I lost Andrew, our oldest. When I say lost, we were at Fort Mountain State Park. I don't know if you've been there, if you live around the state of Georgia or Tennessee, there's a canyon. Our state has a canyon, you should see this, it's a canyon. And you camp at the top of the canyon and there's this ravine. I mean, it's like, you can't even believe you're in the Southeast, it's amazing. So Andrew and a friend had gotten ahead of us. We did a little side trail to do an overlook. It's, you know, a thousand feet. And then I, Andrew's not there. And, and if you've ever lost a child temporarily, it starts right here and you think, breathe. And then you say, hey, Andrew. And then you start screaming and you're yelling. And then I'm running down a trail, you know, yelling, you know, because he's lost. I can't find him and it's dangerous, you know. And I wasn't even thinking about my other two kids. I don't even know where they were. They may have been, they were lost too at that point because I'm running down the trail. But imagine the phone call. Hey, Sandra, I got some bad news. We lost Andrew, but I still have Garrett and Allie. <laughs> See, it doesn't help. When you lose something of great value, the fact that you got a bunch of unlost stuff is of no help at all, right? And Jesus goes on because they're all, they get this, you know? I mean, everybody's agreeing. I, and it, I tell you in the same way, um, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner. Now, this is very offensive to both groups, but Jesus is so good. This is offensive to both groups. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And over the sinners are like, whoa. Than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And the Pharisees who think that God just thinks about them all the time are like, whoa. What do you mean? You mean God's like more interested in the him who I wouldn't even have in my home than me who does everything right? Before they can, you know, leave 
Jesus continues because he's about to tell them something about his adjectives. And he's just given them a few clues, but he keeps going, or suppose, before he loses the crowd. And he speaks to the women this time because he's so good. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one, to which we're like, so what? But this was a big deal. And if you grew up in church, maybe you know this, that oftentimes there's two or three ways to take this. But one way was that a, a parents would give their daughters a dowry and they would have these 10 somewhat valuable coins, sometimes very, very little, and they would sew them into a headdressing. Basically, it was like bait. Like, if you get me, you get these. You know, date me and these come along with me. I mean, I don't know, it's kind of weird, I know. So that was one, that's one version of maybe what these coins meant. Or so there's two or three things, but the point was, these were 10 very valuable coins to this particular woman that represented something so important that she would not leave home with nine. In other words, you don't just move the other nine around and kind of center them up and go out. If you started with 10, you don't leave home until you have 10. Doesn't she, Jesus says, he's so good. Doesn't she light where am I? Yeah, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And all the women are like, yep. And all the men who've you know, given their daughters you know, 10 coins are all like, yeah, you better don't leave home without that coin. Yeah, you stay there. And when she finds it, what does she do? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. And again, it's kind of hyperbole, a little bit of exaggeration, but he's going to the emotion of when you lose something of value, when you find it, I mean, isn't it, isn't it amazing? You, again, if you have, you have no emotion right now, women, about your purse. You have no emotion. But if you lose your purse and then find your purse, rejoice with me, I found, right? You, suddenly there's emotion around something, not because you have it, but because you lost it and you found it. This is a powerful, powerful human emotion. And Jesus is driving deep into this. He calls the neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. Why? We, we know this. This is Jesus is just appealing to broad human emotion. Because, isn't this true? When we lose something of great value, we go to great lengths to find it. When we lose something of great value, we go to great lengths to find it. And all the women in the crowd are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's he talking about? Now we kind of know because we kind of read the background, you know. But this is just a group of people listening to Jesus tell more stories, and they're like, these are so interesting. Does anyone have any idea what he's talking about? Yeah, we chased down the one sheep. Yeah, we chased down the one coin. But what's the point? Is there a punchline? Is this supposed to be comedy? I mean, why, where are we going with this? So he's got their interest, like he has ours. And then he tells them the story, that famous story about a father and a rebellious son. A son, he had two sons, and the younger son, you're, you're, you may know this, you've heard this. The younger son, essentially, these are my words, not in the parable. Essentially, the younger son goes to the father, and the father is wealthy, and the younger son essentially says to the father, you know, dad, when you die, I'm gonna get half of everything. Well, it just seems like you're gonna live forever. <laughs> I mean, by the time you die, I'm gonna be so old, it won't even matter that I get half this stuff. I want the stuff now, I got plans, so dad, look, Let's pretend like you died. That's what this, that's what this, this how, that's how this story impacted Jesus' audience. Dad, let's pretend you're dead and I get half of what I'm gonna get anyway. Go ahead and give it to me now. Now I'm telling you, even as a father, you hear that. Imagine one of your children coming and saying, Dad, you know, thanks for the car and you got me college education, but I'm like, I want, I want the real stuff, you know? I want half the company now. I want you to liquidate the company. I want, I want it now. Could, Dad, could you and mom sell the house rent and just go ahead and give me half the value? I mean, you, what, what would that say about your, your son or your daughter? It, it would tell you the same thing it told the people listening to Jesus' parable, that this son, this son was gone relationally long before he left home. 
I mean, this relationship was broken. Dad, you just won't die. So go ahead and pretend like you're dead and give me half of what I'm gonna get anyway. And the father, this is the amazing thing, if you heard the story, the father wanted to reconnect with the son so much that he chose the shortest route back. The father wants to reconnect with the son relationally so much. I mean, he knows the relationship's broken. I mean, the conversation is sort of the pinnacle of a bunch of other conversations that probably went on in the normal home, right? I mean, he knows the son is distanced. The son never takes his earbuds out. The son never participates at dinner. The son is gone. He's just physically there. And the father wants him back, not his body, the relationship. And so he chooses for the shortest route back. He funds his departure. And what the audience heard when Jesus said this was that the father loved the son, don't miss this, the father loved the son more than he loved his own reputation. And for that culture, they summed that father up as a fool. This is when you need to go to Leviticus and find that hidden verse that says stone the rebellious children because this kid deserves to be stoned. And in the story, Jesus said, the father says, okay, Let's pretend like I'm dead. I'll liquidate half the estate and you can have your half now. And I'm telling you, there, it was silent in Jesus' audience because the point was pretty clear. Here's the dad who's willing to lose him physically, lose him spatially, lose him to potentially win him. And you know, the story, the son, you know, liquidates everything and packs up and kind of hugs his dad and mom awkwardly and probably the older brother nowhere around and he takes off and he goes to a distant country. We don't know where, you know, he just went somewhere cool and got a condo and a car and cat, you know, just, you know, just he's living the life, you know. Time goes by and time goes by and time goes by. And eventually, you know the story. In fact, this is your story, some of you, right? This is a story you hope is playing out with your prodigal son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter. And eventually the son is overwhelmed. So eventually the son is overwhelmed by the realization that he is disconnected. Eventually, not initially, eventually the son in the story is overwhelmed by the realization that he's lost and he's missing home, wondering if home is missing him. He's missing home and he's wondering, I wonder if home is missing me and I don't think home is missing me. So I think if I'm gonna go back, I can't go back expecting to reclaim my position as son. Maybe if I go back, they will hire me, my dad will hire me as a servant because he treats his servants better than I'm being treated where I am now. Because he'd gone through all the wealth, gone through all the money, shamed his father and imagine this dad's. All the wealth that his father took a lifetime, or maybe two lifetimes, maybe it was generational wealth, all the wealth it took a generation or two to accumulate. This son had spent it within a few weeks, months, or maybe years. We don't know. He's missing home, but he's wondering if home is missing him. And in Jesus' audience, it's people like us that are, they would say, I think I'm far from God. And I would like to not be far from God, but I don't know if God misses me. I don't know if there's a place for me. 
I don't know that I'll ever measure up. I know I will never be as good as them. I don't even wanna be as good as them. I think they're all hypocrites. Is there a version of good that's not like that kind of good, but a different kind of good? Because I know I'm disconnected from God and I know I'm kind of far from God, whatever that means. And yeah, I, you know, I meet people who are close to God and they kind of got something going on I don't have, but does, I, I'm missing that, but is that missing me? Whew. And if you'd surveyed the people in Jesus' audience, the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders would say, God doesn't miss them. He's disgusted by them. And if you were to ask them, they'd say, God's not missing us. He's probably disgusted by us. And you know how the story goes, hopefully. So the son takes a chance and he got up and he went to his father. And what happens next in the parable blows the minds and all the categories and all the adjectives of Jesus' audience because they didn't share Jesus' adjectives. They did not see people the way that Jesus saw people. They did not have the categories. They did not share his categories. They didn't fill in the blanks the same way Jesus filled in the blanks when it comes to people. This is so powerful. Maybe this is emotional to you. Maybe this next statement is why you're watching or why you're here. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and it was filled with, and it all depends on how you prioritize your adjectives. Disgust, embarrassment, and but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And Jesus' audience gasped. <laughs> compassion? Have you, already, have you already forgotten what's happened in your own story, Jesus? I mean, no father would feel compassion toward a son who had done that, to which Jesus would have said, you're exactly right. If the father in the story shared your adjectives about people and saw the world that you see, the way that you see people. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, but, but wait, 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 come on, wait, wait, wait. Oh, Jesus, hold on, time out, question. So the father sees the son, feels compassion, runs toward the son, throws his arms around him, but Jesus, I have a question. Why, when the son was leaving, why, when the son had his back to his father, did the father not, from that same distance, run and throw his arm around the son? Why does he let the son go and he doesn't chase him down and throw his arms around him and say, stay, stay, stay? But now the son's coming back and he's the same son, it's the same distance, it's the same two people, but now he's running toward the son to throw his arms around him and bring him back. Why? What's the difference? And this is Jesus' point. And this impacts all of us, whether you're a, Christian or non-Christian or moving one way or the other. Because Jesus' point was that the father desired, the father desired a relationship. The father desired a connection. The father desired a connection, a relationship, not a GPS coordinate. It was not about not knowing where the son was. Like, where's the son? Because somebody go, that's not it. It's not spatially. It's relationally that what the father wanted more than anything in the world was not the son living in his house, but to be connected with the son. And when the father saw the connection being made, when he saw the disconnected son begin to reconnect, he ran in his direction. And this totally freaked out everybody in the audience and he kissed him. 
Now, this freaked him out because if you remember the story when the son ran out of money, he went to work for a farmer and took care of what? Anybody remember? Pigs. And these are Jewish people. I mean, this, could, this story was this, this was a worst upon worst upon worst case scenario. He hugs his dirty son and he kisses him and the audience gasps. And you know why they gasp? Because they didn't understand Jesus' adjectives. They didn't understand how Jesus viewed people. In their minds, it was clean, dirty, acceptable, unacceptable, respectful, disrespectful. And the son failed on all of those accounts. But Jesus didn't see people that way. He still doesn't see people that way. Look up here. And if we are his body, we must not see people that way. The son said to him, this is the fun part of the story. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He's memorized a little script. He had a long time to think about it. It's like, when I get there, I'm not gonna ask to be a son. I'm gonna ask to be a servant. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. In other words, dad, I've been lost on purpose. This wasn't an accident. This, was, this wasn't a mistake. I have sinned. I did all of this on purpose. And the dad's like, I know, and I knew, but you're back on purpose. So let's move ahead. But the father said to him, remember this little speech? But the father said to him, to, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on and put a ring on his finger. He's reestablished as a son, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf that we've been saving up for a party. We're about to have a party, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And now Jesus gives us and his audience, his adjectives. This is how he sees people. This is how he sees you and you and you, this is how he sees me, this is how he sees you. And there's lots of things to describe you, there's lots of things to describe me, but if we elevate, if we prioritize, this is how your savior or your potential savior sees the people of the world. For this son of mine was in this column and now he is in this column dead and alive, he wasn't physically, oh, it's just a figure of speech, let me be specific. He was lost to me. He wasn't lost like we couldn't find him, we knew where he was, I mean, his reputation, I mean, every other day one of my friends is walking up and saying, oh, you probably don't wanna know this, um, but have you heard that your son, yeah, yeah, I, I've heard, I know, I, 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 I know, I know, I don't wanna hear any more stories about my son. We, they knew where he was, but he was dead and now he's alive, he was lost to me and now he's found to me, he was disconnected and now he is connected. And that means we throw a party. Look up here. This is how your savior and my savior sees everybody in your neighborhood, everybody at work, everybody at your middle school, everybody at your high school, everybody in first period, everybody in your algebra two class, everybody on the third floor and the first floor, the people that are welcoming you in the parking lot, the security people, the people that, hey, I'd love to be that rich someday. Every single person you are ever eyeball to eyeball with, Jesus would say, hey, there are a lot of things I could, ways I could describe them, and the many of those descriptions would be true, but let me tell you how I view the world. There are people who are connected to their Father in heaven, and there are people who are disconnected from their Father in heaven. And my primary concern is not the connected, I know where they are and I'm grateful that we're connected. My priority, my passion, the thing that brought me to earth to begin with was to reconnect the disconnected to their father in heaven. And see, this answers the question, why in the world would Jesus, a religious leader, spend so much time with irreligious people? 
In other words, why would Jesus, or I put it this way, the reason, I'll answer the question, the reason Jesus spent so much time with disconnected people is because they were disconnected. The reason Jesus was drawn to people who were far from God is because they were far from God. (laughs) And we are his body. And what was true for him, especially this part, should be true of us. Now, here's why I talk about it and why I'm talking about it today. You see, and, and you know this if you grew up in church or if you're new to church, the gravitational pull of the local church, every local church, this one, all of our churches, every church, the gravitational pull of the local church is always toward the paying customer. It's always toward the connected. It's always toward the people who know where to park and how to get their kids in early and find a seat so you can beat the traffic. I mean, that's the, I mean, we just, we all just gravitate that way. The gravitational pull of the local church and the programming of the church and the budgeting of the church and the way we behave, it's the gravitational pull is always toward the 99, not toward the one. And so what that means, beginning with me, I'm not pointing my fingers, beginning with me, we all individually and collectively run the risk of misprioritizing our adjectives when it comes to how we see people. And before long, we see good people and bad people conservative people and liberal people, young people and old people, my people, not my people, my, my kids' friends, not my friends. My friends used to be my, before long, we just adopt all the cultural norms, all the categories. Next thing you know, we're talking about and viewing the world just like everybody else and your father in heaven says, hey, hey, look up here, look up here, look up here. It's not how I see the world. That's not how I divide the world. Because the adjectives you use the most will eventually get down to your emotions. And you'll be mean to people who don't agree with you. And you'll say bad things about people who don't see the world the way you see it. And your father in heaven says, when you've done that, you have joined the ranks of the Pharisees. And you've joined the ranks of the people that think because I'm connected and because God is happy with me, maybe someday everybody else can catch up with me. And your father in heaven did not send his son into this world to collect all the connected people so they could have a big, happy collection party. He says, you know what my concern is? My concern is the disconnected people. My only fear, and I, 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 you ask our staff, you've been around for a while, I'm telling you, we've been doing this 21 years. I've only had one real big concern. It's not been financial. It's not been, are we gonna find a place to meet? It's not gonna be, what am I gonna preach on? Actually, I worry about that a lot, but that's not been my biggest concern. My biggest concern from day one and still my biggest concern is that we would drift to become a group of successful, big, full, you know, rich churches who are so content with who's here (laughs) that we would forget that the eyes of our father are on the road. They're on the people who are not connected, that we would lose our concern for the disconnected People. Not the down and out people. See, those are some more categories. I don't have the down and out. The disconnected. Now, maybe you've noticed this. If you've not attended one of our campuses or aren't actually present with us or live out of town, you may not get this unless you watch online a good bit. But if you're at any of our campuses, have you noticed, because this is on purpose and maybe you haven't thought of it this way. Do you know who we, we very purposefully and consistently clap for in our churches? Baptism stories. 
Do you know why it's okay there's air horns and kids bring posters and sometimes it gets out of hand and there was a, some sort of rocket the other night. I think it broke something. And, and you know, it kind of gets a little rowdy when we have baptism. And the reason I've never ever said, hey, hey knock it off, let's church, let's be holy, you know, you need to be reverent, uh-uh-uh-uh. Because it is, our, it is our every once in a while reminder that the thing that lights up the heart of God is not us. It's that person that is formally saying publicly, I'm reconnected, or I'm connected for the first time, or I'm taking a step toward connection. So that's why we're emotional about baptism. It's not, oh, finally we baptize somebody. You know, nobody's keeping track. We're not winning any awards. It's, it's our physical way to remind ourselves every once in a while at all of our churches that this is the thing. This isn't a, oh good, we baptized. No, no, that's the thing. People reconnecting with their Father in heaven is what lights up the heart of our Father in heaven. And I don't want us to drift from that. And are we drifting? I don't know, I don't know. But we dare not. And every once in a while, I just feel like I need to poke us all with a stick and go, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What about my disconnected Friends that I, you know, I don't know if they, you know. So let's continue to assume there are guests in our room. In fact, if you're the guest today, it's like your friend brought you to like, oh, this is like the worst sermon ever. <laughs> oh my gosh, I did one of those not things and this was not the Sunday to invite Frank because I told him, you know, let me just say something to you, Frank, or to your friend. You know what? You just keep coming because we're not gonna cram anything down your throat because you know what? We wanna create an environment where you like it. Our, our mission is that to create churches unchurched people love to attend whether you agree with us or not or believe with us or not. In fact, you can belong here before you believe with us. So let's continue to show respect for the views and values of people who don't share our views and values. Did you know the reason people like to be with Jesus who were nothing like Jesus, they did not share his view of the world and they liked him anyway. And all of us have friends that we don't align with in terms of views and values, but we like them. We can be like that. That's what we're called to be. Let's continue to give people permission to explore faith before they actually believe to belong here before they actually believe, to take baby steps of following before they decide I wanna be a fully, fully engaged follower of Jesus. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep creating safe places and starting point where people can ask their difficult questions. And let's let people just attend and ask as long as they want to. And hopefully something about being with you and something about being with you, something about their kids being with your kids, it brings them to the place where they would be open to the fact that, and here's the bottom line, if you wonder what our agenda is, that there's a God in heaven who has invited you to address him as heavenly father. And he loves you so much, he demonstrated it. We're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks. And let's continue, as you've done so well, to have a great reputation in the community. To where people would look at our churches and say, I don't buy what they believe, I'm glad they're here. I don't, I don't believe at all, they believe some crazy stuff, but I am so glad the Christians or in our community. We would be a poorer community without the church, even though we don't necessarily agree with everything they teach. Last thing, have you ever lost something that was of great value to you and nobody was looking for it but you? Have you ever lost something of great, and you tell, hey kids, you know, honey, my friends, oh no, I lost. And, you, and it's like, you're kind of frantic and you announce it, you know, I've lost my, and nobody cares. Let's not be that church. 
And let's not be those people. And let's not be those church people. Let's keep our adjectives straight. Let's take our cue from the father in the parable. And let's make it the habit of our lives, all of us who feel connected, to keep our eyes on the road. Heavenly Father, every one of us has our own story because once upon a time, we were disconnected. Most of us were disconnected on purpose. We knew what we were doing. And when we decided to come back, we weren't so sure you missed us the way we missed you. And then we discovered you were looking for us. So Father, that should be enough to motivate each of us. Whether we are raised in church and drifted away or came to faith later in life, we, we've got enough track record, we've got enough history to know. Sometimes people just need a place and sometimes they just need an invitation and sometimes they just need somebody to listen to them. And sometimes they need people to confront them and sometimes they need people to give them something to read. But whatever it is, Father, I pray that we would be a group of churches, that we would be that unique maybe group of people in our communities. As big as we are, as successful as we are, as much as we love our church, as much as our kids love our church, that we just wouldn't take our eyes off the road. We would never get face to face, but we would always be back to back with sensitivity to our community and the people around us. So would you just please do that in each of us, starting with me, continuing with me, and that we would be a church that you're proud of, not because we all behave so well, but because we share your values, because we share your adjectives. We think there are connected people and disconnected. Break our hearts over those who are far from you in Jesus' name. Amen.